Welcome to the Education of a Financial Planner, where we look at the major concepts in financial planning through the lens of two quant investors who are learning the ropes of the planning process and how to help clients achieve their long-term goals. Learn along with us as experienced financial planner Matt Ziegler helps us understand the most important financial planning concepts that impact all of us and how we can apply them to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. In each episode, we will work through one major financial planning concept from the ground up and learn how we can apply it in the real world. From retirement to college savings to taxes to estate planning, we will cover a wide range of topics that apply to each of our everyday lives. We hope you will join us in our learning journey. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is managing director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. All right. So this is our third podcast on retirement planning. The first episode was on planning for retirement in your very early years. Uh, the second one was thinking about and planning for retirement when you're in your prime earnings or savings years. So where we are in the timeline today is um, when someone is about to enter retirement um, or early on in their actual retirement. So the discussion is going to be around, I think, the key considerations that individuals have as they approach retirement, trying to determine what the right time to retire is. We'll talk about sequence risk and trying to manage that, um, staying engaged during retirement, and then things like social security and other qualified plans. So this is going to be uh, a good episode for anyone, I think, that is you know, nearing or in their early retirement. But to start, Matt, maybe I can ask you, what are some of the key things that people should be thinking about as they approach retirement? The biggest thing that most people are thinking about and everyone's situation is different on this is just the mindset shift that comes, of course, around leaving work and starting something else. But Accumulating assets versus decumulating or spending down your assets is really more of a brain buster than sometimes people give credit before they actually start. And I'm a broken record on this, but those three C's are going to apply to everything we talk about in this conversation today. And just to remind you, question like coming into retirement, we want to put context around each of these things. And we do that with the calendar, with the cash flow. And with the crap. And that is again, calendar, aka timeline, aka what's happening to who and when, cash flow, aka your budget, aka the dollars coming in and the dollars coming out, and your crap, aka your balance sheet, aka what you own and what you owe. So accumulating and decumulating focuses in on that cash flow where all of a sudden the money coming in from the job probably goes away in retirement. And we're going to replace that, maybe social security or maybe a mix of spending down assets and other things. And that's a huge consideration for people to work through. Thinks they're ready to retire, but doesn't really know. Where do they start? I mean, you have someone that's working, they're 60 years old, they're thinking about, you know, I want to retire maybe by age 64. How do they approach it to begin with? I mean, that's a big question. So simplest form when to retire goes back to the, the calendar element. And there's two pieces from calendar we're trying to pull out with people when we're having this conversation. 
The first thing is, how long do we expect that retirement to be? So there's a big difference in retiring at 70 and going, maybe I got 30 years here or less or a little bit more. Or retiring at 50 and going, well, am I retiring at 50 because I think I'm not going to make it past 60? Or am I retiring at 50 because I, I could make it to 100? So the duration of retirement is very different. That's one key consideration beyond just the age. The next piece, though, to go, can I retire? Or when should I retire? Or is it okay for me to retire? Is we work through the cash flow against the calendar. And we go, okay, if you are going to retire for 30 years or 50 years, where's the money going to come from to fill potentially the deficit? And if you have the crap, if you have the asset to support the gap in the cash flow, then you can do it. A quick example might be if you have a $30,000 shortfall and you're going to be retired for 30 years, we should be able to look at your balance sheet and go, oh, here we have a roughly $900,000 somewhere at least of money that we can pull out, fill that cash flow deficit and say, this is sustainable, at least in our base case. Putting aside the financial part of this for a second, like how much do you deal with the personal side? So like I've seen a lot of people in my life that sort of retire and they go from like 100% working to not working and it ends up being a bad idea. They, they lose like their purpose in life. They probably would have been better off if they had worked part-time or something. I mean, as a planner, how much do you deal with that? Do you let people make that decision on their own or, or do you kind of, you know, bring, bring that up and make sure they're aware that that's a possibility? I, I love this question because for all the talk of spreadsheets and everything else and modeling and all that wonderful, wonderful stuff, that part of the conversation is kind of the easy part. And the most important part for pretty much everybody comes back to what you just said, because we know, and Ben Tuskai, my, my colleague at some point, he sent me this, this survey from AARP and it was 55% of retirees are going to work during their golden years. Over half will work and something like 40% are going to do it part-time and another like 10 plus percent are doing it full-time. And of those people, uh, CNBC had another study where they basically said one in six people who retire are going to return to work. The reasons given, three of the top five reasons are all financial. So ran out of money or the market destroyed me or something else. But the other two are basically I'm bored and lonely. So the therapist hat that comes on in our role is actually almost more important than the uh, analyst hat. Now, the way we address it is we have our three P's for this because I'm apparently human alphabet soup here. So the three P's are people, purpose, and process. And when we're talking to someone about retiring, we're talking about, okay, at work right now, you've got your work people, you've got your work purpose, the things you have to get done. And then you've got your work processes in the morning. I check my email and then I join these meetings and I go see these clients, whatever they are. When you retire, there's a vacuum for those three categories. And if you don't solve them, you're going to feel adrift. And we see this with people who get forced into retirement or don't consider it. So this is a huge conversation, oftentimes three, five years, definitely one year out where we work through this. My, my own mother retired last year. And leading up to retirement, we talked a lot about this. Your work people, now what are you going to do? You want to spend more time with your grandchild? Okay, people, purpose, process. I want to spend time with my grandmother more, or my, uh, well, actually my grandmother, she's taking care of them. And also uh, her granddaughter, uh, my niece. And it, this idea of saying, 
I know who the people are in my life. I know the purpose that it serves and I know the processes by which I want to serve them. So, so important. To your point, like I see a lot of people that are like, all right, I'm going to play golf every day. And, and they quickly realize like playing golf every day gets old very, very quickly. <laughs> like you don't get a lot of purpose in life from playing, unless you're going to be a professional golfer or something, you don't get a lot of purpose in life from playing golf every day. You don't get purpose, but you need to know because like I've, I've got some other clients in mind right now who, so they stop the jobs in New England, they go to Florida full time. And they basically say, these are our new people in this new community. We all love golfing. We all love the social activities and the other stuff. We didn't have enough time for while we were working. And people purpose process. Here are our friend group. The purpose is we're going to enjoy life together. And the process by which we do it is we have these golf events. We have these lunches. We have these dinners. We have all this other stuff. You could fill the vacuum if you conscientiously do it. If you just roll the dice on, oh, I'm going to love golfing every day you might be surprised. Just, just on this point, there was this chart on Twitter and we'll put it in the podcast, but it basically had, and it had this big circle and it had what people think wealth, wealth is and it had a big circle with like money in it. And then um, underneath it, it said what real wealth is. And that circle was broken up into like different pieces of the pie, health, family, experiences, freedom, community, fulfilling work and friends. And I think <clears throat> in retirement, if people could think about those things and how they're going to fill those gaps or those parts of their life, um, I think it would lead to much more, a much happier retirement for a lot of people. That's part of our job as professionals is not just getting the numbers right, but making sure all that real life stuff that we have to live is being accounted for as well. So um, Jack, one of the things that is uh, we, we talk about a lot with, with our clients um, and I know Matt and Ben do as well, is this idea of sequence risk around retirement, especially uh, early in retirement. Um, and, you know, last year was probably a good example of why sequence risk is important. I mean, the, the S&P was down, I think, you know, close to 20% year to date. The 60-40 had its worst year in, um, you know, maybe the last 40 or 50 years, something like that. Um, very bad year, double digit loss. And so can you just sort of talk through what sequence risk is and why investors need to be thinking about this? Sure. This is something I, I, this is one of my weaknesses because I tend to throw terms like this around with clients and it's like, well, we've got to manage your sequence risk. And they're like, well, what the hell is my sequence risk? And, you know, it, it's really actually a pretty simple concept. The idea is this, if, if I'm, if I have a, a portfolio in the market and I'm not pulling money out and I'm not adding money, if I gave you the returns for the next 20 years and said, put them in whatever order to get yourself the best return, you could play with that all day in your spreadsheet. You're not going to change it. You're going to get the same exact return. Returns, the ordering of returns doesn't matter unless money's going in or unless money's coming out. And so when money's going in early in your career, you'll, you'll hear people like me a lot of times say, well, you want a bear market, you know, when you're 21 and you start saving for retirement or something. And, and that's the reason is because when money's going in, you want the bad returns to be first because you're effectively, you know, I guess what the young people call BTFD these days, uh, you're, you're buying the dip. So you want, the, although it hurts to lose money, you want that to happen. And retirement is the exact opposite of that. And in the case of retirement, money's going out. And so what happens is if you get the bad returns first, not only is the market down, but you're pulling money from your portfolio while the market's down. So you're effectively selling the dip. And so that makes it much less likely you're going to achieve your goals. So this is something that's really, really important to understand as you're going into retirement. And, you know, I gave myself the easy part of this question and I have to give Matt the hard part, which is, all right, now we know what sequence risk is. What do we do about it? So I should say first, I'm going to make this super simple, but like with, with my firm, with Sunpoint, we have, we have all sorts of intense modeling around this and how we think about this, but 
I think for most people, we can boil it down to a couple of key ideas and then it's, it's not rocket surgery. So there's that famous Mike Tyson quote or the Mike Tyson rule, if you will, that everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face. And that is a super valuable thing when we think about sequence of returns risk, because you better have a plan. The fear is always, I retired and I have my retirement nest egg. And then right after I stop working, the market pukes. And we saw this happen with clients in 0809. We saw it happen with clients uh, again at the beginning of the COVID crash. This is real and people learn from this stuff. And even if they don't know all the complicated terms you just threw out, Jack, they do know friends and other people why they're scared of sequence of returns risk because they can see what it does. So I will propose next to the Mike Tyson rule of everyone having a plan until they get punched in the face, the what I call Little Mac rule, which is Little Mac, for those who don't know, Mike Tyson's punch out, classic Nintendo game. Little Mac was our little hero that we play, played as who can actually defeat Mike Tyson. And this is the plan for what happens after you got punched in your face, saw your plan get blown up in front of you, but you still have that secret star punch hidden in your pocket. So the way that I think about this is you have to be thoughtful for the plan when something goes wrong and sequence of returns risk virtually guarantees something will go wrong right before you retire, during your retirement, or some stage later in your retirement. Three buckets is the oversimplified way I'm going to reduce the strategy. You've got your short-term, your medium-term, your long-term. Bucket one, bucket two, bucket three. If we think about this in terms of weather, this is like in risk and weather here. So uh, I got to go somewhere this afternoon. I'm going to look out the window. I'm going to go, oh, sky looks kind of cloudy. I'm going to wear my jacket and bring my umbrella. That's short-term bucket. Bucket number two is I want to go to the beach this weekend. Let me check on the app on my phone. Is it going to rain on Saturday and I should go on Sunday or vice versa? So slightly longer time horizon. And I'm using data to inform me that I'm not just looking at with my own eyes. Bucket number three, longest term. If I want to go on vacation to Florida, I'm probably planning that for next winter. I'm not necessarily planning it for the beginning of August because I have this seasonal awareness that goes like, yeah, okay, this is when it makes the most sense. In our portfolios, in our crap, the way we turn what we have from a junk drawer into a functional toolbox is we have these three buckets at a minimum segmented. And that is we have our bucket one, which is our cash flow and the money that we're spending down. And we have that accounted for in super, super safe assets, cash, money market, stuff like that. Bucket number two represents money that we think we'll need and we can see it usually on the calendar. So stuff that goes into bucket two might be our allocations for paying for my kids to go to college. Shout out to that episode that we did. Or in retirement, my next several years of expenses. This is bigger than the emergency fund, but it's looking for stuff that keeps pace with inflation, but if the market gets rocked, shouldn't get rocked too much. So it should minimize our risk for the next several years of spending. And then bucket three is where we own our stocks. It's where we own the equity in our home. It's where we might own a, a private business or other things too. Those are the things that can fluctuate the most. Now we use the term bucket specifically because we want to think about what we're pouring in and out of these buckets to manage sequence of returns risk. So if everything gets screwed up, what we don't want to ever have to do is say, my bucket three, my stocks just got annihilated. 
if my stocks got annihilated, I don't want to be forced to sell them to turn them into cash flow today. I need to make sure I have that backstop in bucket two that goes, stocks got rocked. I'm going to leave them alone. I'm going to take from bucket flow uh, from bucket two to fill my cash flow in bucket one and get through next year while bucket three takes time to recover. Likewise, star punch, little Mac rule, in the event that I have more than I need in bucket two, but stocks got rocked last year or stocks and bonds got rocked last year, my bucket one is full, be opportunistic. Because the other rule of sequence of returns risk is if I have a plan and I can take a good punch, I can also BTFD or take advantage of that stuff, even when I'm in retirement, if I'm being thoughtful about it. And that's how we think of sequence of returns risk and mitigating it. Yeah, you know, we should do a whole episode eventually on this because there's so many different interesting things. You know, Justin did a, Justin and I did an episode of Excess Returns called The Importance of Drawdown Management and Retirement Planning, where we kind of talked about some of this, but we should do a full episode on this at some point. Um, I want to ask you about two other things people think about in terms of how they're going to pay for their retirement. Um, obviously, people are going to, you know, as you're approaching retirement, you're, you're using your retirement save, you know, in these qualified vehicles to think about maybe the core of what you're going to do. But uh, the other two things I want to ask you about is number one is social security. Like, how do you think about that? When you're planning for somebody's retirement, as they approach retirement, how do you think about Social Security as part of their plan? Social Security, if you work in America, you're putting money aside out of every paycheck, basically, into your Social Security and your Medicare. And you're going to use it. It's not really an asset because it's something that goes away when you die. And I'm ignoring spousal benefits and some other things for a second. But it is something that's critical to your cash flow. And so you have to understand uh, Social Security if you're going to get it, which most people who worked are, um, or if they were married to somebody who worked, they're going to get it. Other whole story there. But you want to plan for it because you're going to turn it on at some point and it's going to matter in your tax flow uh, or, or in your cash flow. It's always tax flow. It's going to matter because it's also taxed in a different way than income. So it's really important. So a quick background thing on Social Security. You can turn it on somewhere between the ages of 62, usually on the early end and 70 on the later end. You go to the ssa.gov website, socialsecurityadministration.gov website, and you can find out basically those three ages, which I'd encourage everyone to do. Know what your 62 income benefit is, your full retirement age, aka FRA, or most of us now about 67 benefit is, and then know what your 70 is, which is the longest you can wait. And maybe a whole other episode just on understanding social security is in line. I want to say this too, though, like where the heck do those ages come from for both social security and Medicare, which healthcare as a massive expense is also another thing that factors into the retirement conversation. Do you guys know, do you know the story of where we came up with the age of 65? So this is crazy. I, I learned this from Charlie Ellis here at the kettle. Uh, so basically... It goes back to the 1800s into the Germans and Otto von Bismarck. And the idea was when Germany industrialized, they basically had to figure out a way to get people off of the farms and whatever else to come work. So they introduced this idea of a guarantee of employment. So we're not just going to hire you for a year and then the family farm goes to shit and now you got to turn around and, um, you know, wh what are you going to do? So the guarantee for employment says, come work on the railroads, we'll guarantee you a paycheck. And that worked so good. So they build all these railroads. They're doing all this stuff. And at some point, you know, the 50-year-old guy isn't so good anymore. The 60-year-old guy, really not so good anymore about laying track and hammering that stuff in. So the guarantee of, of employment turns into, 
we need to also figure out a way to pay people to stop working. And semi-arbitrarily, the Germans decide in the late 1800s that 65 was a good age where we could afford as a state to pay people to stop working. That gets basically baked into all these other systems around the world starting in the late 1800s. Flash forward to like 1935, when the U.S. government puts together the Social Security plan and they go, 65 sounds like a good age. From 65 up until not that many years ago, that has been the retirement age basically in America, thanks to the German industrial complex. That's that's really interesting. You know, it sounds like that that's something they're probably going to look at over time because it does seem as, as we're living longer and longer, you know, that age is going to be something that's going to have to go up. And they're finally actually amending some of this stuff literally in the last, you know, couple of years. Kind of wild. Do you think about home equity at all? So, so using the example of my parents, like my parents lived in Fairfield, Connecticut, which is, you know, an expensive place to live. And they had built up a ton of home equity as they headed towards retirement. And they were moving towards North Carolina, which was going to be much cheaper. So they knew they would have a bunch of equity. They could, you know, they could get the house they wanted in North Carolina. They'd have a bunch of equity they could contribute towards their retirement plan. So that was sort of part of the, their planning. But is that something you look at a lot? Or I guess it depends on the circumstances and what the person's doing. So it totally depends on the circumstances. Just curiously, did they, did they, Use that as part of their retirement plan, like we're going to retire, then sell the house, then go to the other state? No, they, it all happened at once. So effectively, they, they retired, sold the house. They knew the new house they were going to buy. They knew it was less. So they knew they'd have this cash you know, that would come in um, as part of the difference between the two houses. So in that conversation, the way that we usually tease this out is, number one, you plan it in advance. So usually, like they probably knew for a few years coming that they were going to do something like that, roughly. Okay, so in... um in their crap on their balance sheet, we had this asset and it's a bucket three asset because it's a long-term asset. It was the home. They're not day trading their home. They were just holding on to it and building this equity. So first off, they're aware of it moving towards retirement that they have all this equity in this house. But now what ends up happening is they retire and they go to sell the house. So we would want to model out in advance. And I'm sure they did some version of it. Even back in the envelope is good enough or better than nothing where they said, we're now going to convert this house, when we sell it, the home equity in bucket three into cash. And now probably what they looked at was, okay, how much of that cash do we need to buy our next house, another bucket three asset, or how much of that cash are we going to take off because we need it to solve for the cash flow or the budget shortfall in the next few years to the next several decades. And then that decides where the new, um, cause it's just rebalancing, right? Where does that equity need to flow through to? What bucket does it belong in? What risk should I take at this to either support cash flows in retirement or turn into a longer term asset that's going to go past my timeline? I was reading just yesterday, Vanguard, and we'll put a we'll put a link to this. Vanguard just published a study that was basically showing that retirees moving from one low, one high cost state, something like California or Connecticut, to places like Florida and Texas, they can actually save. Up, they can find up to $100,000 in you know, savings on average by, by relocating to these states, which could, could be you know, huge for some people. An extremely common conversation we've had, or I've had professionally in my entire career. So over the last like 15 years, the, just the understanding of that, no, looking at the full balance sheet, what the equity is, and then looking at the tax differentials, because there's a bunch of things that happen uh, when you sell the house in Connecticut and buy the house in Florida or whatever the scenario is where it's, how is this stuff taxed? Where am I rebalancing the extra cash from the home equity as you just referenced to 
And then how am I drawing that down and how's that going to be taxed in potentially my new state in retirement? This is why you work with somebody to go through that math and have a good plan for it in advance. What are the rules? And this is a kind of a basic question, but when, when can people start withdrawing from qualified plans? And I'm just wondering in your experience, how often do you see people withdrawing at that point? Or do you see people usually withdrawing, you know, far beyond that date of when they could withdraw? Three ages that everybody needs to keep in mind for withdrawing money from qualified plans. So 401ks, touch on IRAs and stuff like that too. So the three ages you have to know are 55, 59 and a half, and then 72 plus. Come back to that in a second. 55, rule of 55 basically says that when you, so prior to 55, in all cases, we have this 10% penalty for taking money out of a qualified account. And that matters because if I'm 45 and I want extra money to pay for my kid's school or to whatever, if I need $100,000 and I take money out of my qualified account at 45, I'm gonna pay federal, so maybe I pay 35% federal income tax. I'm gonna pay state, maybe I pay 5% in state tax. Then I have a 10% penalty that gets piled on top of it. So 35 plus five plus 10, that could be a 50% tax hit for somebody for pulling money out before that 55 or 59 and a half age. I need a hundred grand. That means I have to take $200,000 out of my 401k and get there. These are big numbers for money that you might be giving to Uncle Sam if you're not aware of them. So starting at 55, rule of 55 basically says if I have money in my corporate retirement account, so I work somewhere, I have a 401k and I retire at 55, I can probably, if I lean it in the corporate account, start to take money out without the 10% penalty. So that's the first place it gets removed. At 59 and a half, I'm able to roll money over from my corporate account to an individual retirement account, for example, and now no more 10% penalty. So 59 and a half, no matter where it is, I'm pretty much clear of the additional 10% penalty. I'm just paying federal and state income tax. I don't have to take it out though. So for a lot of people, we also see them waiting until what used to be 70 then got raised to 72, back to finally updating those ages for human life expectancy and everything else. So current age, 72, it's actually bumped up to 73 this year. And that's what the required minimum distribution age is or RMD age. Uh, That actually goes up to 75 in 2033. So we're in a raft of changing laws with this right now. But the concept is I can take at 59 and a half I have to take at 72 plus now. And that means the IRS publishes a table where they'll make you take money out, make you pay taxes on it. And, and that's just like 55, 59 and a half, 72 plus. Touching this a little bit with the 401k thing already, but how about for people who do want to retire early, who have like huge balances in their accounts, you know, what are their options? I know I've seen this thing, this substantially equal periodic payments thing that you potentially could do with an IRA. Like, what are some options for somebody who maybe has accumulated a big balance and wants to retire earlier than 59 and a half and has an IRA and maybe doesn't have a 401k? Couple critical things for people who want to retire early. You are definitively, especially if you have a bunch of tax deferred assets, and that could be you have corporate stock in your retirement account or to your point in just an IRA or whatever else. If you find yourself in, the, in these shoes and you want to retire, especially pre-55, you got to talk to somebody. Like this is tax prep and financial planning, like essential, don't try this at home because this stuff gets 
squirrely really fast. So uh, substantially equal periodic payments is you have a way to take out substantially equal payments, usually for a period though of at least five years and there's a bunch of qualifying rules. That's one way to get money out without the 10% penalty. Uh, if you work for a corporation and you have stock that maybe we've run into this with like Amazon and UPS and other employees in the last few years, people got employed and the stock went gangbusters. And now they're going like, oh, maybe I have this bigger net worth. It's just all in a retirement account. Well, can I retire early? NUA, net unrealized appreciation, uh, involves ways. And again, don't try this at home, but where instead of paying income on that money, you might be able to pay long-term capital gains. In many cases, that's a way cheaper tax rate. Uh, likewise, under, under the SEP rules, there's ways to structure this to try to mitigate those damages. They're complicated and there are some updated in the law changes. So just don't try it at home. Just know you have the options and you've got to reach out to a professional to model them out. What are some of the um, biggest mistakes, Matt, you've seen for people in retirement? Failing to plan is a plan for failure. It's probably the one that comes to mind the most. And it's back to the three C's. If you don't have a good awareness of your calendar and what's coming down the pike, you can shoot yourself in the foot. So if you, you were determined to retire at 62, but you didn't realize how much healthcare was going to cost until you went on Medicare, rude awakening. That's just solved by understanding the calendar. Likewise, maybe you did decide to retire at 62 and you knew Medicare wasn't going to turn on to 65 and you knew your healthcare was going to be expensive. So cash flow, you knew it was going to be expensive, knew it was going to be a problem, but you better have some, you know, some crap on the balance sheet that basically says, here's the way I'm going to pay for this stuff to happen. Those linkages, so long as you're looking more than a couple of days, and ideally with clients, we like to say like one to five years out, you should be marking out the first one to five years of retirement. And by doing that, you can plan for all this stuff and not have a negative surprise like a market crash or an unexpected medical expense where you just don't know what to do. Have a plan for when you get punched in the face. All about Little Mac all day long with avoiding these mistakes. Who would have thought Mike Tyson's punch out would have come into uh, a retirement planning podcast, but I love it. More important than college is spend that time with Mike Tyson's punch out. Are there any other things that you and your team does to help uh, people sort of plan or prepare for retirement? The point you made about sequence of returns risk, that can't be understated enough. And when we just rely on these rules of thumb and other things, stocks give us 10% a year, 4% withdrawal rates, all that stuff. Those are great. They're adorable. I like to say it's the Amanda play on a canal Panama risk. Like palindromes are really cute, but backwards and forwards, like what are you actually going to do with that? You need the canal that ships the stuff and moves the, moves the goods and gets everything going. That gritty reality and planning for it so that not only you know what you expect to do, but you know what to do if something goes wrong and then also what to do if something goes right. And if you have a third party, a trusted advisor, you're saying this stuff to and you're working through a plan with that adapts and evolves with your life and the world around you, it makes all the difference for peace of mind in the world. And I, I can't recommend it enough. It's, it's a life-changing decision for a lot of people just to work with somebody who can hear you and help you map this stuff out. So I took some notes. So let me try to summarize what we've talked about today. Um, to start at the, as you enter retirement, you know, there's a mindset shift in thinking about accumulating assets and then de decumulating assets in retirement. 
we talked about the importance of the people, purpose, and process. So those three Ps um, in retirement, sequence risk, and how to try to manage that. Um, we have our three buckets, short-term, medium-term, and longer-term, and have those bu buckets segmented out based on time horizon and cash flow needs. Um, I love the point about the star punch and being opportunistic because when somebody enters re retirement, right, if they retire at 65, they may live until they're 90 or 95. Um, so their assets need, you know, to last a very long period of time. And I think being opportunistic at certain times, we're not encouraging market timing by any means, but, you know, that's something that investors can do and tilt into to help their assets grow over time. Um, we talked about social security, the, the, the different ages, ages 55, 59, and 72 now, but it's shifting to 75 with the RMDs and being aware of the rules and penalties around taking withdrawals from uh, retirement accounts. And then Matt, to your point, probably the most important point is the biggest failure is not to plan. So, um, you know, what retirees or people nearing retirement should be thinking about is, you know, what do those first five years look like and planning for that, working with a professional um, or really modeling it out themselves? I mean, we have clients that are in retirement and they, some of my clients have done a fantastic job of modeling out their retirement, but they've planned. They've planned it. Um, individuals can do it, but, you know, and we've just touched on the tip, tip of the iceberg here, which is why I think working with a financial professional on this stuff is, is, is certainly probably best for most people. So that's the summary. Um, thank you everyone for watching and we will see you next time. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau and follow Matt on Twitter at, at Cultish Creative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.